you know, everything's been pretty normal except one night I went out and did a bunch of donuts in the gravel intersection for no apparent reason. <laughs> so she, so she said, let's dial that one back and try something different. All you have to do today is put on your shoes and go for a walk. That's all you have to do. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, nearly one in five U.S. adults live with a mental illness. Individuals living with a mental illness struggle with external and internal stigma associated with their illness, which often leads individuals to avoid sharing their illness with others, especially employers, education providers, and even their own family. As discussed in our first Facing Tomorrow podcast, this self-isolation and negative self-talk often leads to far worse outcomes, including suicide. Thankfully, many living with mental illness, like today's guest, uh, my name's Brett Brinkmeyer, are choosing to come out of isolation and openly share, dialogue, cope, and mentor others in similar situations. Now, I represent the one in five in a long-standing battle with major depression, a common but often debilitating mental health condition shared by an estimated 17.3 million adults each year. My attempts to cope and press forward include this podcast facing tomorrow to be a place of storytelling and strength for those choosing to overcome and needing hope for the same. As you'll hear, Brett is an overcomer and a mentor, a storyteller and a poet, and has chosen, as he gives thanks to regular medication and therapy, to positively impact the lives of others living with mental illness. Brett, what is the date that's frozen in time for you? I'm not sure the exact date, but I think the first major moment for me is in about 2004. I'm from Ames, Iowa originally, and I had moved to Iowa City um, in kind of a pre-diagnosis despair and uh, desperation. So I had some very good friends there who were always very accepting of me and very encouraging for you know my interests and things like that. But I knew that things were really bad because there was sort of a shift in the way that I was perceiving things and the way that I was interacting with the world. Um, I'd been working a night shift at uh, MCI, an old phone company, and for about four or five months. And one late night, I think it was like two or three in the morning, uh, something came over me and I wound up driving back from Iowa City to Ames to my parents' house and woke them up in the middle of the night. I think it was probably three in the morning and just told them that something was wrong and I didn't know what I needed to do about it. So I was about 24 at the time and uh, my folks were awesome. I'm so thankful to have parents who have been really supportive and understanding through the whole process. And my mom reached out to a nurse friend of hers because they didn't know what to do. None of us had any context for mental health at all. And uh, her nurse friend said, well, he probably should go to the hospital and so professionals can talk to him and find out if there is something more serious wrong. But the, the time leading up to that was very confusing and my diagnosis is, current diagnosis, I should say, is schizoaffective disorder bipolar type. So I was experiencing a lot of kind of minor hallucinations, especially in the dark around uh, around town. I was going, since I was working overnights, uh, on my nights off, I would go for late night walks around Iowa City, which I don't know if I'd do that today, but uh, back in the day, it, it was a little safer. And I would write, one of my symptoms is if I forget what it's called. I think it's called logorrhea, actually, the incessant writing. 
Um, so I had all these moleskin notebooks and spiral bound notebooks just full of poetry and, and narrative and journaling and things like that. And I just couldn't stop. And I was do, trying to do it all alone. And that was uh, kind of the turning point for me was when I was like, I can't, I can't do this alone and I need to go somewhere for help. And I had been to a few therapy appointments, a few counseling appointments at a local counseling center. And they had diagnosed me with ADHD until that point, but there was, things were moving too slowly and I wasn't on medication at the time. And uh, so going back, I think to my parents' house that night and then subsequent few years were a series of hospitalizations and medication changes and stuff like that. But that's the turning point for me. In a 2006 article in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology, Corrigan, Watson, and Barr at the Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation at Evanston Northwestern Healthcare refers to self-stigma as a three-level model of stereotype agreement, self-concurrence, and self-esteem decrement, which basically amounts to taking all the ideas, thoughts, perceptions, and beliefs from others and agreeing and applying them to the self. This is made even more challenging when you have no family history of mental illness for which to mold thinking which was the case for Brett. None at all that I know of. So all of our experience with mental health was through media. A Beautiful Mind is the best I can say for a positive mental health reference. But I mean, when you, when you think about mental illness is the, is the uh, defense that, you know, white men use a lot of the time when there's a violence case or something like that. So that, that was only kind of just getting started in the popular media at the time, but it was kind of the, the real only context we had was, you know, psycho killers or people that are so beyond the normal realm of perception that, that they're seeing things that aren't there regularly or something like that. So none of, neither of those were the case for me, thankfully, but yeah, my parents were great and, and super supportive through the whole thing. And so my, my major struggle after that was self-stigma because I had no context. So there was a part of me that was like rejecting myself at that point, fighting off the mental illness with thought <laughs> is the best way I can describe it. And that didn't work. Fighting against the diagnosis for me was kind of something I had to get past and something I wasn't doing intentionally. I remember just being extremely resentful at first of, of the diagnosis and of myself and why do I have to deal with this and why is this some, in my life? Why not someone else? Why is it me? But it's turned into more of an asset than a struggle and something that I enjoy. I, I enjoy working through with myself and with other people. Um, externally, I don't think I've experienced an awful lot of stigma openly, but I know that th through talking to friends or friends of friends that, that it's there, uh, for me personally in my own life that, uh, I know before I was married, I was dating and it was, it was very difficult to bridge that topic because it's like, okay, how do I explain this maybe, um, to someone who has no context um, and are they going to just walk away as a result of that? Uh, so that was a big struggle, but I never had anyone really throw it in my face or uh, openly uh, talk about it, but the fear is there and stigma is very real because, like I said, uh, contacts between myself and then like a friend of a friend who's somewhat removed from that conversation, maybe 
that'll come up in conversation that they're um, having some difficulty thinking about what my diagnosis is and that they're rejecting me because of that. Um, but some of that, you know, you want to try to educate those people, but some of it is like that negativity can kind of just go away. And that's sort of a fine thing. And if it's a close friend, that can be super sad for a while. And hopefully that person will come back around. But in the meantime, it's really more important for a person to focus in on their own healing process. All right. When you go back to look at those writings at the time when you were just incessantly writing, what do you see in those writings? Well, sometimes the most obvious thing to say is about half of them I can't even read because I was writing so quickly and so, so hurriedly. But I see, uh, first of all, I see a much less mature person, and I'm sure a person 20 years down the road from me would look at my writing now and say the same thing. But I see a person who is really struggling um, and desperate to understand concepts like, well, concepts and feelings, both um, trying to make sense of the world beyond school. So I had also not, not gone to college, so that's for me, a, a kind of marker, not that going to college is a marker for mental health, but a lot of my friends had gone to college and, and I was more than qualified and more than capable of studying, but I couldn't get myself to focus when I was there. I did go for uh, a year to my local university and it was just an absolute mess. So a lot of the stuff that I look back at in the writing is trying to make sense of all that. Like why why did I have a high ACT score and good grades in high school, but I college just didn't work at all? Why did I struggle to maintain relationships and friendships when all my friends seemed to do it so naturally? Um, why was I in groups of people where everyone seemed to be having normal and natural conversations and I couldn't make it work? I have a lot of my old poetry from that period is about that. I have one that's coming to mind uh, called Combination Lock, and I don't remember it exactly, but it's basically like, Everybody else seems to know the secret password or the secret combination of words to say, and I'm just, I'm just kind of floating by. To hear Brett read his original poem, Combination Lock, and to read the poem, go to facingtomorrow.org and open the corresponding blog post with this podcast episode. The whys Brett shares are incredibly common and often associated with mental illness. Jeffrey He, in his 2017 article on Harvard's Students in Mental Health Research blog, discusses Dr. Corrigan's 2012 research, which found that the disclosure of mental illness is associated with decreased negative effects of self-stigmatization on the quality of life. At the same time, however, openness can lead to discrimination by the public and in some cases, maybe even more isolating. Furthermore, he notes, disclosure is a complicated topic as there are many different levels of disclosure that can lead to different effects in different contexts. Brett experienced the full range while in Iowa City, and in his experiences with doctors, medications, and therapy. When you went to Iowa City, what changed? Yeah, for me, it was uh, discovering a sense of personal freedom and, and discovering uh, just the mental freedom to explore what was going on in my own life. Um, there were parts of me that, that really wanted, so I had a very close-knit group of friends in high school, and when we went to college, a lot of us went to the, this local university in Ames before I moved to Iowa City, and there was kind of an unspoken expectation that we would maintain that group of friends. And my reasoning for going to college was 
to go to college and meet new people and, and have new experiences and stuff like that. But uh, there was a guilt factor and all these restrictions. My family was also in town. So I had a lot of self-imposed, like self-imposed rules that wouldn't allow me to really be me. So when I went to Iowa City, things, things changed like it opened up. Um, my thought process opened up. I was able to write more clearly about what was going on and more more lucidly, I guess. I was articulating the thoughts and feelings that I was having a lot more clearly. And I think that I also uh, started pursuing music a lot more than I had in the past. Um, dropping out of college uh, allowed me to do what I was kind of distracting myself with, which was uh, learning guitar when I was in in Iowa State. But when I went to Iowa City, I started meeting other musicians and meeting other people who are interested in that. So I got to have more conversations with people who I didn't know. And some of those people did have diagnosis. And, and when I would tell them about my problems, they would say things like, oh, I, you know, I struggle with that too. So it normalized it a little bit for me and enough that I could, uh, like I said, articulate it a little more clearly on paper and then go back and read it and then see like, okay, this is even something I wrote five minutes ago, I could look at and say, this is a person who needs some guidance or needs some, some kind of mentorship or help of some kind. When you had received your, your diagnosis, I believe that you had mentioned at one point that you were informed by the, the medical professionals that there was going to be limits to what you were going to be able to do. Can you share with us a little bit about those those limitations that they had mentioned? Sure. And uh, how how much of a surprise it was to you seeing where you are today? Yeah, yeah. Um, if nothing else, the false limitations that a few doctors had kind of put on me made me enjoy those experiences even more when I was able to do them, despite their recommendation. For example, uh, one doctor said, uh, you're never going to probably be able to finish college or or go to college another one said you're never really going to travel or be able to be away from home for very long at a given time and eventually and so when I first got my diagnosis with my parents they invited me to live at home for a while and these limitations were placed on me through a long series of hospitalizations I think there were six of them for a week or more at a time in the course of three years so in retrospect, I can't really blame the doctors for kind of losing some confidence in my capabilities. But so those hospitalizations were 2005 to 2008, roughly. Afterward, when I was finally able to get a stable medication regimen and some good counseling, um, I was able to decide, well, I want to really want to study English is the thing and writing was the thing that I really was interested in. So I did move back to Iowa City to go to the University of Iowa. And I was elated, and it was really confusing for uh, some of the people that I met as uh, students because they were at the same time puzzled and fascinated by this adult student who chose to go back to school, and not only that, but was like thrilled to be there. So I made some very good friends in that regard, and in some part thanks to that doctor who said I would never do it because that was me doing it despite you know what I believed at the time I would be able to do. And then while I was at the University of Iowa, um, there was a study abroad opportunity that I took advantage of to go to Cuba. And that experience would normally be pretty elating and exciting. But like with with the uh, 
diagnosis and limitations placed on top of that 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 previous doctor who I I did wind up leaving behind put on me it just made it that much more fun and exciting to be there I was just absorbing everything in university and then on that study abroad uh, experiences I'll never never forget probably a lot more of them than the normal person might having gone through an expected series of educational events Brett's story from his initial concerns for his mental health to finding his tribe in Iowa City, to living each day well represents Corrigan's hierarchy of disclosure strategies, from social avoidance to secrecy to selective disclosure to indiscriminate disclosure to, finally, broadcast. It was at the point of broadcast that Brett's mental health adventure began to shift. It is not just stable medication and counseling that provides the greatest relief. It's a supportive supervisor, an opportunity to add value to others, and finding ways to give back. Through Brett's work and his support of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, Brett found his relief. So you were able to graduate college. Yeah. You were able to move into a full-time employment opportunity. Yeah, several actually. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure what I would do after college, but uh, I wound up kind of settling into technical writing. And uh, two one full-time job that I had kind of a longer commute to and that which is the only reason I really left that job for another one that I have a very short commute to and I do have challenges with full-time employment I've been able to open up to my boss about my experiences and my struggles and he's extremely supportive I kind of have a dream situation going there because his catchphrase is always just what can I do to help you succeed which are the magic words I think in uh, a, an employer-employee relationship because, oh man, he's just thinking, you know, what can I do to ensure that you don't struggle with work on top of what you're already struggling with? There are challenges, but for the most part, I'm able to do it. And this kind of brings me to another turning point I had in my life, which it was in about 2013. I discovered a peer support specialist as a, as a, employment opportunity. It's the only job description I've ever seen that has mental health diagnosis in the requirements for the job. So I discovered that after I graduated from the University of Iowa and was looking for work uh, for the first time, really looking for full-time employment. And that was a life changer for me because it was like, wow, this, this diagnosis can actually be an asset. And through peer support specialist work and the training involved with that, I have been able to make it an asset, which has been, I never, I mean, that's beyond just saying like, I'll never be able to travel or I'll never be able to go to school is like this underlying assumption that I'll never be able to provide value to the world. Or if I do provide value, it will be tainted and tainted and less value than what other people might offer. But I found that in getting involved with NAMI and leading support groups and stuff like that after the fact that I'm able to enrich people's lives just by being in a stable state of recovery and offering coping skills and mechanisms to other people that may be just starting out on their journey. When when you have an opportunity to go out and meet people and provide that guidance and support, what are some of the the things that you hear from people that that have been discouraging to them in the past that you've been able to speak to and encourage them to move forward. Sure. When I was working as a peer support specialist, uh, my my 
counselor that I was seeing at the time referred to my job as guerrilla counseling. So it was like going into the community and G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, right? So going into the community, like the combat hot zones and talking to people who are really struggling. We, we mostly supported people that were on Medicaid and were in very serious situations. Um, so people are so appreciative when you share your own story. So like if you're struggling with a mental health diagnosis and you have come to a way of working with it, just sharing that that story with someone who is really struggling is just a great way to connect. And that that's what really opened people up. Our, one of our core beliefs in the job that I was doing was that uh, peer can or, or someone else that's struggling with a mental health diagnosis can break down the you don't know what it's like thought. So if you can get past that thought into someone's conversation, um, it really opens people up. And people are just so grateful and so full of uh, appreciation for you taking the time to talk to them and and share what you've experienced and how you've dealt with this stuff and what has actually worked in a practical way, not just what you know a removed uh, provider or doctor might might say you should try this because it's worked for other people but no you can say like this is how it works for me so you had mentioned your uh, battle with medications Mm -hmm. can you explain that journey both in terms of your experiences with choosing to go on medication any struggles that you had there or any of the struggles that you had on specific medications and then perhaps what you found that has best worked for you sure so uh, when I was first diagnosed, uh, I, I don't remember all the medications that I've been on because there's too many, but I know some of them um, would flatten me out so that I would have no emotion and no real uh, imagination for a while. And those were unacceptable to me for those reasons and also because it would not allow me to do work and, and participate in the things that I enjoyed. And there were others that would really spin me up so... There was a there was one medication that I was on. Uh, my psychiatrist was like, "Well, you know, we'll try this one. Sometimes it causes a little uh, stimulation and mania in people, but I don't think it will for you. But please let me know if if anything does." And I the next time I saw her, uh, I said, "Well, you know, everything's been pretty normal except one night I went out and did a bunch of donuts in a gravel intersection for no apparent reason." <laughs> so she so she said, "Let's dial that one back and try something different." So. The thing about medication is that everyone is so different and even the same medication will have different reactions with people with the same diagnosis. And the thing I would overall say about medication is that mental health medication is difficult because it's not really measurable. The effect um, is all measured through conversation. So when you're having those conversations with your psychiatrist, it's really important that you not only bring today's version of yourself but also since you saw them last what has been going on because all they can do is talk to you they can't i mean you can take blood samples to measure like whether the medication is quote unquote in your system or absorb absorbing correctly but as far as its effect on you you're the expert on that when you go into your doctor's office so i mean it may seem like a little pressure but if you can if you can bring you know, the version of yourself that is genuine into that conversation, it's going to go a lot quicker. For me, I struggled with that really hard. I didn't want to be on medication. I didn't want to, I I didn't want to experience mental illness or mental health journey at all. But 
once I got the right medication, which for me, I take Abilify, which is an uh, antipsychotic, I believe. Uh, I haven't really put much thought into this this whole topic for quite a while because I was so sick of thinking about it. It did take those multiple hospitalizations, and I think about four years of medication trial and error. Um, and I was able to deal with that partly because there was one doctor who explained to me early on, I think it was a nurse actually, who explained to me that this is more of an art than a science. It's really about distilling the information that you give in those conversations down into something that, that could help you with the future uh, medication. So I've been on the medication I'm on for over 10 years now um, and a steady dose of it. And it's it's really just been life-changing to find the right one. And I'm not who I used to be, and I don't think anybody is. I can't do some of the things I used to do and things like that, but I know I'm so much better off with this medication and also, of course, with a lot of counseling and other therapies in place that uh, I'm just grateful to be able to do, like you mentioned, the full-time work that I've been doing and uh, being active in the community and things like that. When I went to Iowa City, I was seeing two different counselors at the time because I had a, a psychologist at Student Health who was extremely helpful, and he was doing medication management and helping me with my thought process and thinking through what I was doing. I was seeing another counselor at the time, and I was so enmeshed in the university and these counseling sessions that I was just talking about it with everybody, uh, not everybody, but all of my friends and all of my family. Every conversation would come back around to like, well, you know, I was talking to my counselor and he said this, or, you know, at this point in my in my mental health journey, I've been thinking about these things and wrestling through this, but uncovering a lot of this X, Y, Z kind of stuff. So um, really the greatest support I think that I've experienced is from my community, um, from my family community and my social community out in the world too. The more open I've been about it, the more support I've gotten back. And not everyone knows what to say. And um, I've had a few people kind of awkwardly turn away or change the subject from the conversation and stuff like that, which is fine. Um, Not everybody's equipped to talk about it. But uh, the people that are really invested in me as a person and, and uh, want to see me succeed have come back with a lot of great support and some of them with a lot of great information that's helped out in the journey too. Speaking of people that you talk to, an elephant in the room, if you will, uh, where people are just not sure exactly what to say. When If we have a listener that, that has only seen the news that you had mentioned, uh, you know, the, the murderers, the, the quote-unquote crazy people, what would you try to encourage them to do in order to open the conversation up? That's a really tough one. I think, um, well, we, we were talking about NAMI a minute ago, um, and I'm heavily involved with NAMI Central Iowa too, which is just north of the Des Moines chapter. I think that's that's a great resource. Um, NAMI has a website. I'm not sure what it is. I think it's NAMI.org. There's a ton of information out there about statistics and people who are affected and the and they have a repository of stories from from mem- uh, members of their organization more than a thousand stories I'm sure that you can flip through by subject and topic and learn about uh, what other people are experiencing with that I think it's one in five adult Americans have a diagnosis and uh, one in three are have a diagnosis in their life. So maybe their wife or a child or a relative or a friend. Um, So there's more people than you think um, that are struggling just like you. 
And I think getting connected with that community in whatever way it is, if there are support groups in your area or um, like if you have an, a local NAMI chapter, which is very likely, um, you'd be able to find a lot of information and a lot of new perspective on those things. Most, uh, most high-functioning people with mental health, like myself, just don't appear to be struggling most of the time, but definitely are. Um, so once you get a conversation going with somebody like that, too, a lot, of, a lot of things will open up for you. Dating and raising a family poses unique challenges on their own, let alone with considerations around mental illness. A 2014 meta-analysis of 33 studies, all published by December 2012, examined the familial health risk of severe mental illness. The results, published in the journal Schizophrenia Bulletin, found that offspring of parents with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depressive disorder had a 1 in 3 chance of developing one of these illnesses by adulthood, more than twice the risk for the control offspring of parents without severe mental illness. But, as writer Steve Calori honestly explains in his article, How Schizophrenia Disorder Has Affected My Relationships on the Talkspace Voice, I may have schizoaffective disorder, but other people have challenges they deal with too. It's the imperfections that give us all value and define who we are. So how can people best tackle the world of dating and raising a family while also working through their mental health adventure? Yeah, for me, there's a lot of concerns. Um, I found that the more it's another situation where I found that the more open I was about it, the more open the other person would be about it. And for the most part, um, people that I was dating at the time, uh, I can think of two specific examples of people that were like, oh, me too. And it's just like, oh, well, great. Let's have this conversation then. Uh, but leading up to that conversation is so stressful and so difficult. Um, but yeah, the open dialogue that you're talking about, having a way to communicate about that. My wife now is just interested in supporting me when I'm having a struggle like that. Um, and I support her back uh, in similar ways. And for us, that's just, it creates opportunity to get to know each other better and to know, you know, what our triggers are. And if we're very stressed out, like how we might be responding. And it, it's not because of me that, or it's not because of her that I'm acting this way, but because uh, I'm having an internal struggle of some other nature. And this is one that comes up a lot. And here's what I need during this time for, for me, the, the longer time, the more time passes, the easier it is to say like, oh, you know, I'm actually experiencing this and here's the best thing that you can do during this time. So as as you progress through your mental health adventure, um, just know that as as you're being introspective and getting to know yourself better and doing counseling and things like that, uh, the more you're going to be able to identify and the easier you're going to be able to say, here's what I need. When you were making the decision to raise a family, was there any discussion on the concerns of generational pass along of any mental health condition? My wife and I have talked about that a little bit, and I don't, I don't currently have any kids. It's something we have in line for the future. And we're, we're both working real hard to make sure that we're as stable as possible before we embark on that journey. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of discussion around that. But making the decision wasn't hard. It's just like, you know, there, there are biological concerns. And of course, if our kids do wind up having those kind of issues, we're going to be better equipped 
you know, having had experience with it ourselves to help them out or to identify what, what maybe they, maybe they need through getting to know them and getting to know what they're, what works best with them. I, I, I say every once in a while that someone with a mental health diagnosis has probably experienced and thought of things that have experienced and thought of things that don't occur to the quote unquote normal person or that that normal person might not even imagine or dare to dream about. And those are negative things and positive things both. So the experiences that we, my wife and I have going into having kids are only going to enrich their lives. And if they don't have a diagnosis, that's, that's great, of course. But something that we know is if that does get passed along, our experience with it is going to just help them out more. I appreciate that. That actually leads beautifully into your own call to action. You've taken your diagnosis. You've taken your experience as a peer support specialist. You've taken your experience as a writer, and you've chosen to use that to tell the story of others. Can you talk a little bit about your project? Sure. Yeah, the project I'm working on, I'm the working title is A Field Guide for the Newly Diagnosed. So it's coping skills and strategies and just normalizing mental mental health struggles. Um, so what I'm doing is interviewing a series of about 24 to 26 people on weekends over the phone or through Google Forms, you know, whatever's most convenient for people. And I'm just asking people who have a diagnosis to participate in the process of creating this guide. So it, it takes that, that same belief that the story of a person who has been through it or is going through it is so much more powerful than just a lot of information. Um, so a couple of years ago, I had written a draft of this thing. It wound up being about 20 pages, and it was full of information and my story. And I kind of lost hope in it and gave up on it for about a year because I was like, I don't like this is boring to me. Like it, when I read back over it, it's like it's just stuff I already know. But I guess that's because I wrote it. <laughs> so. Uh, I realized the magic key was going to be to bring a lot of people's stories together into it. So I'm asking people very personal, difficult questions, but I'm also opening the conversation with that. Hey, we can connect on this point. Here's here's kind of some of snippets of what I'm doing and why. And people are really engaged with those interviews and really engaged with the process because a lot of people who have been through it want nothing more than to help other people get through it. It's such a difficult thing, especially when, like in my case, you have no context for it. What that leads to is that you have no idea what to do next. So I'd like to get this writing, you know, online and in providers' offices and stuff like that, where people are sitting and waiting, literally, not just for their provider to see them for 15 or 20 minutes, but waiting for their life to either get back to normal or for them to be able to function in a way in society that they can recognize as valuable. And so I'm hoping to put that book in people's hands that at the moment that they are realizing that they need it. And yeah, so the, the project is basically meant for someone who has no idea what to do next with their, as one of the person that I interviewed says, their mental health adventure, uh, what to do with it next. And so this is going to be kind of a, a stepping stone or a resource for people to look at and say, okay, well, this person had the same struggle. What did they do? And, uh, and find out. If people want to email uh, Brett, my first name, B-R-E-T-T -T dot C 
Brinkmeyer, and I'll spell that too, B-R-I-N-K-M as in Mary, E-Y-E-R, at gmail.com. I would love to hear your stories and have the chance to interview you about what is happening and what has happened in your mental health adventure and hopefully work you into this process. I think it'll be the end of the year before I get this thing completely written. So uh, here we are in 2020 looking for people to participate. So to close us out for for this episode here, I just want to try to touch on uh, your advice to someone. So if once you get to the point where you have your book, you have that available for people to read, and you you are now talking to that person that's in the waiting room with the book in hand. What is your hope and advice to that individual receiving the diagnosis today? Man, that's going to be a tearjerker. Uh, I think my hope for that person is just that they find a life that they're happy with. I mean, you have to really open yourself up once you get into that situation to new possibilities and new opportunities. There might be a lot of things that you had hoped you would do that you maybe won't do. That's not for anyone else to say but yourself. Uh, As I learned with that psychiatrist who told me I would never go to school or never travel, um, I rejected those things, but I did take other sacrifices that things that I hoped I would do that I still may do someday. And that's kind of part of the cha- the thinking change that occurred with me is just that openness and that willing to, willingness to accept the mystery of, I don't know if I'll be able to X, Y, Z, but right now here's what I can do. And here's what I'm going to focus on for now. Some days for me, it was just like putting on my shoes and taking a brief walk. Uh, when I was in my 20s, there was a long period of depression. But one thing that helped me through that so much was just having, again, a supportive community and family who would come into my bedroom after I'd been there for a day and a half and just say, all you have to do today is put on your shoes and go for a walk. That's all you have to do. And that that was life-changing, really, because that was just their acceptance of my situation and their acceptance of my illness. So to the person in the waiting room, I would just say, open yourself to the possibility that you can do this one day at a time, and that will lead you in a direction that you maybe never imagined or thought of that could be better than what you thought you wanted to do yesterday. Local author, poet, musician, radio host, technical writer, and mental health advocate, Brett, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. For more information on this topic and many others, please go to facingtomorrow.org. There you'll find corresponding blog posts with all the podcasts on Facing Tomorrow. And we also encourage you on that blog post to add your comments, suggestions, other books or resources that you found valuable in your own journey. But most importantly, always remember you are loved, you are needed, you are appreciated, and you should never feel like you have to walk this journey alone. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen.